one of my favorite quotes. It sounds depressing, but I find the positive spin in it, which is, um, it makes me laugh too. Um, life is like a box of grape nuts. You open the box, no grapes, no nuts. And I always love that because you can look at that in a negative way. You didn't get what you want. But I always look at it as, but you get something, and it's probably better than what you wanted. That was Kara Hauser, and this is the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm super excited to introduce Kara to you. She is a wonderful and amazing human who brings strength into my life just by me observing her and getting to know her a little bit. I'm also very good friends with her husband who has had a good influence in my life and has taught me how to fish, which I am very grateful for. (laughs) It has brought a lot of joy and relaxation into my life. Now, before we get into this conversation with Kara Hauser, I'd like to remind you to go and look us up on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at JTL podcast. And you can find us there, like us, follow us, um, rate us, review us, give us any snide remarks you might have in our comments. And also if you or someone you know and love would be a great candidate to sit down and talk to me about lessons they've learned in their lives and their journey through their life, that they would like to leave for people who come behind them or just give advice to those of us who like to hear stories and experiences and life lessons, please contact me through Facebook or Instagram or at our website, jtlpod.com. And I'd be happy to set up a time when I could sit down with you and have that conversation. Also, remember that we have a fantastic partner here. A Life Untold is our partner that we are working with. And as I mentioned in last week's podcast, my mom has been working on um, her life story through A Life Untold. And I'm really excited to um, get that when she gets that finished. She has mentioned what a easy and thought-provoking process it is to answer those questions as they are laid out online. So you can either answer questions online and have that done, or you can do a live interview with one of A Life Untold's biographers, and they will have a phone conversation with you up to five hours to interview you about your life and the things that are important to you. That interview, those questions answered, can then, and will is then, compiled into a hardbound book with pictures of your choice, etc., that will be a, of huge value to your posterity for generations to come. I highly recommend you check out this service at alifeuntold.com. Make sure you use promotional code Justin at checkout to save 10%. And Justin is spelled J-U-S-T-I-N. Now, once again, I'm super excited to get to this conversation with Kara Hauser. I think that you will find something of value that you can apply into your life and in the way you interact with others who may not look or physically be the same as you. It has been a great learning experience for me and a great opportunity to get to know a fantastic person just a little bit better. Hey, Kara, thanks for agreeing to sit down with me and let me torture you for a little while. Yeah, no problem. So where I want to start out is where it all started for you. Where where does your life begin and, and, and with whom? Okay. Um, well, I was the first child 
Um, we're always proud of that, first children. Yes. Um, and my parents, they lived in Nampa, Idaho, very exciting place, southern Idaho. I'm one of those strange LDS people that don't have hardly any relations in Utah, but they're all in southern Idaho. So uh, mom was a physical therapist, and dad, um, at the time, he, he was probably doing lots of different things. He's mm-hmm. kind of gone through a lot of different jobs throughout life. So I was, I was a very cranky baby, mm-hmm. and my mom was a physical therapist, but she just assumed that I was just a fussy kid, you know, because okay. she'd never had another one. Right. Um, but looking back, they noticed that I, was, I would cry pretty much constantly anytime I was patted on the back or laid down on my back. And so um, about nine months in, um, they, there was a bump that started to form on my back, mm-hmm. and so my mom obviously knew at that point that that was not normal so she Mm -hmm. took me in and they discovered a tumor um, growing and it was a spinal it's called a spinal lipoma which um, in my case is not a cancerous tumor so most people think when you see tumor they think cancerous which is going to attack your your body and cells Um, this was just a simple tumor tumor that grew um, in the body it's kind of like quite often um, when I explain it to kids, mm-hmm. um, they love this. You know, I talk about like if you've ever had a dog that might grow like a little bump mm-hmm. tumor on their body, they they just really quickly take it off. Okay, so that's great if it grows somewhere that it's easy to take uh, out or off. Right. Um, mine decided to randomly grow right in the middle of all the uh, nerves that go down to the legs, mm-hmm. so at the base of the spine, right in that big mass of lots of important things that decided to grow. Mm-hmm. So as it grew it basically just kind of pushed nerves against bones and kind of messed stuff up that way. So Mm -hmm. it kind of did a lot of random stuff. It wasn't really anything specific. So it affected my legs, my balance, um, other things. And so, and then it it kind of affected each leg differently. Um, So anyways, at nine months, they took me in and discovered this. um, And it wouldn't have been something that they would have really been able to test for or anything. and so, so it's not like a genetic or a blood something nope, that shows up in the like blood. That. It's, it's just, just a random kind of a, tumor. Yeah, that, bad luck, really. Right, <laughs> so, right. So they took me in, and one of the first doctors that saw me said, you know, you need to prepare for the fact that she won't probably be walking past the age of five. Hmm. And so, um, so then they got in contact with Shriners Hospital, and they did the first surgery to get it out um, at around nine months down in Salt Lake City and um, they weren't able to get they were only able to get about 40% of it because it was kind of like a meatball wrapped with spaghetti and so to get that out they didn't want to cut more nerves and cause more damage Um, and so they were they just had to kind of leave some of it in and just hope that they got enough that it wouldn't grow back and then but in fourth grade so I guess that would be seven or eight they um, they found that it was growing a little bit again and so they went in this time but luckily they had invented lasers by then Mm. and the laser was able to get in between all the nerves carefully and Mm. um, get rid of you know 99 percent of it so at that point you know it's it's not going to get worse but all the damage the side damage it did to everything else um so in the meantime between those two big back surgeries they did a number of um foot surgeries to try to get you know bones straightened out try to get nerves to work properly so it did cause feet and muscles yeah, to, it to did. twist um, and yeah, whatever just else. basically some some nerves were not signaling and some were and mm-hmm. so um, I 
my right my right leg um, the foot kind of grew crooked so that's where my limp comes from mm -hmm. the left foot has like a really high arch in it which is not very stable mm -hmm. um, weak ankles there's pain sen pain sensitivity loss mm -hmm. so um, I stepped on a needle one time and didn't feel it and it kind of worked its way clear through my foot before we even noticed it wow. things like that mm. <laughs> which you know you think here's this is kind of interesting what I've learned is things that you don't think is good like pain right, right. <laughs> nobody likes pain right. uh, when you don't have some of those things there's a reason for pain mm. pain is to signal that there is something wrong right and when you don't have that um, properly it can cause a lot of other problems. And so I always tell my kids, I'm grateful for pain and I wish I had pain in certain areas because right. um, currently one of my biggest problems is, is, is if I'm not paying attention and scratch my foot or, or you know, cut it open, I may be walking on it for week, you know, possibly um, days um, if I'm not checking my feet. And that can obviously cause infection. Infection. Because so, yeah. just because there's not pain doesn't mean that infection exactly. can't yeah, set exactly. in or, or exactly. something else can't exactly. happen. And most of the surgeries on my feet were kind of hit and miss as far as success, um, mostly because, and I did, they did a lot of casting, mm -hmm. um, and you can try to re-get bones and muscles back in line, but mm -hmm. if the nerves are going to continue to not function, they're right. just going to kind of go back to what they were before. So did so, you spend a lot of your youth and childhood oh, yeah. in splints and casts? Yeah, and um, I got really good at walking around on total foot casts. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and they tried every sort of leg brace and splint and some were really ridiculous and awkward and most of them just ended up I don't wear anything now really except a brace on one of my weak ankles mostly because most of them would cause other problems mm. so they would throw my gait off and it would cause mm. sores and so they just kind of said you know just do your best um, right. there was one surgery in high school that was probably the most successful and that helped stabilize one of my ankles um, but really, I'm still walking. Yeah. So and how old are I'm, you now? I'm 40. I'm coming up on 41. So wow. we're beating the odds by, by 35, 35 years. years. Yeah. <laughs> so we're still going fairly strong. I'm starting uh -huh. to feel my age a little bit more. The recovery periods take longer. But right. <laughs> so that was kind of, I mean, my childhood was, was that. But it was an awfully happy childhood for all that. Mm -hmm. um, I was a pretty cheerful kid and had a great family to take care Cranky of. Cranky baby turned into a cheerful kid oh, with, yeah. with, with yeah. some physical issues. Yeah. So when I first saw you and met you, I didn't, you know, I had no idea what the what the problem was. I thought it was some genetic, you know, genetic or muscular skeletal, which it kind of is. Yeah. But but I thought it was something that, that you were born with, which kind of were, but it was this tumor that grew into something. So how has this um, experience in your life affected your interaction with people? Do people uh, interact with you a little bit differently than they would, say, me or, or somebody else who doesn't have an obvious um, disability, yeah. I guess? Yeah. I mean, you, you, it can't help. You can't help not um, r interact differently. Um, I went through a, a decent share of, you know, kids making fun and stuff like that. Um, but honestly, I don't remember... A lot of that I always had really good friends I always had supportive you know teachers um, church that was especially supportive people at church um, were very accepting and also um, willing to adapt activities but also include me in everything mm -hmm. and I do think that a lot of that came from the way my parents 
addressed it, mm. which is that they literally had me do everything that anyone else could do, if at all possible. Um, dad, when I was in a cast, a full leg cast one year, um, my dad got a big plastic bag and duct taped it all around the cast and hauled me up and down the sledding hill mm. so that I could go sledding with everybody. <laughs> um, and then my mom, being the physical therapist, she knew that um, I also the hard lesson of I had to learn to take care of myself. Mm. And so she, you know, she taught me to just do as best I could and to take care of stuff as it came and to not coddle me right. um, at all. Um, I remember reading in my journal, she kept extensive journals throughout all this, which is amazing um, because I and I actually was a very happy child and I love the hospital. I was one of those strange oh. children because I was welcome there and um, I was pretty lively. Um, I was pretty popular, honestly. I know that sounds silly, but <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I only had a physical disability. I didn't mm-hmm. have any social or mental disabilities. Right. And so therefore I could communicate well and make friends easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely helped and I'm grateful for that. But um, so in the hospital, I remember my mom, I, read, I was reading through the journals that my mom kept through this time. And first of all, I mean, I don't remember any of it, thank goodness, but my parents went through heck <laughs> at that time. The amount of time they spent in the hospital and the, and back then um, the healthcare system has come a long way as far as bedside manner mm-hmm. and treating people with respect. And mm-hmm. not that, not that I would ever say anything against Shriners because they were great to us, but there were always moments and I'm grateful that things have kind of changed a little bit as how they treat patients mm. um, and children and parents as well. But um, I was reading a journal entry one time and she talked about um, there, there had been an accident um, that, that, that I had kind of caused be, partly because of my disability. Mm-hmm. And my mom, you know, said I had to clean it up and I was pretty young. And, um, and so, you know, I was kind of crying about having to clean this up. And, you know, she said, and I had to, I had to walk out of the room and go to my room. And then she said, and I burst into tears thinking about that. I, I, I wanted to take care of it for her. You know, I wanted to do it for her. I didn't want her to have to go through this for something that it wasn't really her fault, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. but she said, but if I don't teach her now to take clean, you know, clean up after herself and take care of her own problems, some, she, you know, if she ever wants to live on her own, mm-hmm. she's going to need to do that. And um, I'm so grateful for that tough love because mm. there were times when I was definitely on my own and um, and I don't think I could have done that if I was constantly relying on somebody else. So so now you mentioned, you don't remember that specific situation. I don't remember that specific one. So tell me about a situation where tough love was shown and said, you've got to do this on your own, where <laughs> you maybe at the time were kind of bitter about it or was like, um, sure, sure. Why, why, is, why aren't you helping me with this? Sure, yeah. yeah. Honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind doesn't have anything to do with my disability. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always a very good student, um, had no problem. Uh, I, that first child sort of uh, thing of wanting to please everybody, wanting to the, be the best at everything. But I remember in high school, and my mom was adamant that, you know, we lived a little ways out in the country, and so she was pretty adamant. You miss the bus, and it, that's going to be a problem. Or you don't turn, you know, if you leave something at home, I'm not going to run it into you. you got to figure out, you know, to deal with it. And I remember that I um, had this huge project, a, a big Pacific Northwest map that we had to do, worth you know 300 points, most of your grade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like literally the one and only time I remember that I left an assignment at mm-hmm. home. And I called my mom and I thought for sure, it's this huge assignment, mm-hmm. she'll take pity on me. And she said, 
sorry, she said, I've, I've told you before, you have to be responsible for stuff like that and I'm not gonna bring it into you. Mm. And she knew good and well that my grades were good enough that if I turned it into day late, which just dropped my grade down one, one level from mm -hmm. an A to a B, that it right. would be fine. But I just, I lost it and I was so frustrated. And looking back, I'm like, that was one of the best lessons I had because mm. it was like, you can't expect your mom to run stuff to you every time you need it sort of thing. So, so was that like a high school or that middle was in school high type school, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was so in that, high school. You know, yeah. in high school, you think <laughs> that this this right. could be the end of my life if I don't get exactly, this in. Exactly, exactly. Or if you're like me, you can think that, nah, I already got to see it. You know? <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah. Exactly. So, so But it's a, that, that was a big deal for you yeah. at that time. Yeah. And to be able to look back and go, that was one of yeah. the best lessons that could have been learned yep. from that. So how has that... Has that tough love type um, environment carried over into your own family now with that, that you have kids and everything? How does, how does that work out? How does that transition? <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I think sometimes I wish that I was better at that. I do tend to be... So tougher is what uh, Yeah, you mean? I okay. do tend to want to... You know, yeah, all mothers want to make their children happy. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and you don't want them to see them suffer. Um, and I have two two good kids that are uh, fairly obedient and are good at school, and so they don't struggle a lot. But um, recently, in some classes I was attending, they were talking about how important it is for kids to struggle. Mm -hmm. And they said that some of the kids that are um, that are very smart and and things at school especially come easy to them, when they come up against something that is a struggle because eventually they will whether it's mm -hmm. you know when they go to middle school or or college or get a boss they don't like or a job that that's tough um that they have a real hard time processing that because mm -hmm. they've never failed before they've never struggled before and all and a lot of the kids that struggle at school all the time are used to that mm -hmm. and so they take challenges and they just kind of get into it and and deal with it and so i've been really aware of that lately um of not giving in so often mm -hmm. to then you know asking for my help and saying okay well why don't you work on it first and mm -hmm. then we'll see you know what I can do and mm -hmm. and it's okay to fail and um and that's a good thing and we've talked about that directly to them about um the need the need to be challenged mm -hmm. and to face hard things and they're both in track currently and uh they're not very good at it honestly right. um uh -huh. and that's okay and it's it's nice to <laughs> it's nice to find something that they may not necessarily be great at, but it challenges them to stick to it, even if they aren't, and mm -hmm. to get better each time they try it, at least. So, so that phrase you just used there, it's okay to fail. Yeah. Tell me a time when you failed, other than yeah. what we just shared here. Yeah. Like, because that I don't see that as a failure. I see that as <laughs> a forgetful thing. Tell me yes. about a time you yeah. failed and what you've learned from that. Oh, um, the failures that come to mind are times. Um, that are, you know, dis uh, disappointment in myself mm -hmm. for treating somebody badly or maybe not following through on something. Um, and just those times of, I guess, yeah, I guess failing myself and what I know is right or what I know mm -hmm. is good. Um, but in the same instance, a, a number of those are ones that I'm also like great. I, I want to say proud. I don't like the word proud, but grateful mm -hmm. that, um, a few of them, I realized my mistake mm. and then tried to fix it um, mm. in treating somebody badly, you know, being able to humble yourself enough to say, you know, that that was that was not right. That was not. And, and not all those times do I feel like 
it was 100% my fault. Mm -hmm. Maybe the other person was being a little bit too sensitive. Uh, but I can be pretty um, insensitive sometimes. Yeah. I tend to be kind of uh, tough that way and, and say things um, pretty bluntly. And uh, and so I think um, the instances that those come to my mind, at least I, I noticed when I did fail myself and tried to make it better. Mm. And I think um, those relationships were stronger because I was willing to do that. It was very hard. Mm. It's very hard to humble yourself and go to somebody and say, I'm, you know, I, I treated you badly. Yeah. Um, and I'm a jerk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say, I would say those. Um, so, I mean, really, honestly, I, I don't mean to come across <laughs> in any way prideful, but um, my life's been pretty good and yeah. um, been able to be fairly successful in, in, in life, I feel mm-hmm. like, mostly. So. Yeah. So you were born in, in Nampa, mm-hmm. Idaho, yep. and you eventually made your way up here to the Spokane area. Yep. When did, how old were you when that happened? Um, well, I was in fifth grade, okay. so what is that? 10, 11, 10, 11 yeah. yeah. Um, we moved, um, well, we moved up to Spokane, actually. Sorry, we moved into Spokane area mm-hmm. when I was six. Um, oh, okay. And so we lived um, in the valley for a while and off of foothills for a while. and. Okay. Um, just kind of moved around and then my mom was mom and dad were always looking for property and mm-hmm. um they drove by this beautiful 40 acre area with this house that literally was a shack i mean mm-hmm. no indoor plumbing in 1988 let's just say that wow. the the old old guy that had lived there didn't feel like he needed that um <laughs> and so when he died his sons were selling the property and my mom fell in love with the property and she and her um young days and young naive days thought mm-hmm. oh we'll just we'll just renovate the house uh-huh. and uh <laughs> so uh, mom kind of makes she, she's a very strong personality mm-hmm. so um when mom decides on something it tends to happen <laughs> in the family <laughs> so they bought that and and it was a great adventure it was a bit crazy but. so here you are you're like 11 years old living in a a shack <laughs> On forty acres of yes. it's not flat land. There's right. there's hills. Oh, yeah. There's there's oh, trees. Yeah. There's all sorts yeah. of stuff. How did that fit in? And I'm going to go back to yeah. to to your disability there mm-hmm. with that. How did that help you having to traipse all over the place sure. and through through this shack that you're living in and everything that is not accessible? Yeah. I, mean, I guarantee. <laughs> nope. nope. <laughs> so so tell me about that experience. I remember distinctly um, being so tired walking up and down the driveway to the bus. Um, a little bit of longer um, driveway, and, but I remember also um, my sisters were always very willing to, you know, take my backpack mm. and, um, and stuff like that. But again, my mom was not the type that was going to run down the driveway with the car every day, twice a day, just mm-hmm. just for me. Now there were, you know, there were obviously times when I was when I had hurt myself or something that right. she would do that. But yeah, around the place, man, I just went everywhere with my sisters. I, I was a little bit more of a homebody just because um, I. I just always like to stay home and read, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I did just as many chores as everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, I weeded the garden and climbed into the raspberries and milked the cow. We had a cow for a while. Mm. And um, I was up there tromping down hay when we got hay into the big wagon. Mm-hmm. And just about everything that they did. I had a part in it. I may not right. have had the, phys- the harder physical labor ones, but um, I definitely was part of everything that we had to do. Yeah on the property um so yeah so tell me about the re- the the renovation of the shack 
some of the memories you have in yeah. that process, how long sure. it took sure. and everything. Um, now, when I say shack, I mean, it was a, it's a large house, don't right. get me wrong. There was four bedrooms upstairs, and um, but it was so run down. And, and we've, we've kind of um, heard, we've kind of tried to research the history of it. So when we moved in there in 1988, um, we found some um, some stuff around that had dates on it that made us think that the main part of the house was built at least a hundred years ago, wow. and then parts of it had been added onto since then. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole valley was owned by a family called Hamp that um, were loggers, and mm-hmm. this was this wasn't the nice house. This was like the you know like the bunk house for mm-hmm. workers or whoever. Um, and looking back on it, we know that's why the house really doesn't is not a great. It's not a well-built house. Okay. Lots of people see an old house and they think, oh, it's got good bones. <laughs> this one doesn't even have good bones. So it should have been burned down from the beginning and start from scratch. But that was not an option. My parents didn't have the money for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just slowly did renovation after renovation. There was the first thing they put in was a, an addition where um, I remember my parents and their, and their parents, my grandparents, all came to help um, digging into just rock hard clay mm. for hours on end because the 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 soil down there is almost all clay mm. and then we did not uh, my mom said that she wanted an indoor toilet before they moved in that was her only stipulation mm. so dad got that put in um but for the first couple of years we um either showered outside my dad built a shower outside and to this day he loved that that was <laughs> his favorite way to shower and he wants to build one at his new place mm. Um, and us kids bathed in big tubs, you know, in the kitchen. This is in the late 80s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we, there was an old, you know, one of those really old wood stoves, like cooking stoves mm-hmm. in the house that had been left there. And, um, and it's beautiful. It needs renovation. But um, we cooked pancakes on, the, on the, those lids and learned oh. how to hold the lids up and put the wood inside. And um, we had, I mean, we had wood, wood heat until couple of years ago honestly mm. um i remember a cold year when we kind of all slept in the living room because it was too cold upstairs mm-hmm. and we all dressed by the fire i'm reading little house on the prairie to my daughter currently right. and a lot of it sounds actually very familiar because uh-huh. we did some of that uh-huh. um and and my grandparents were were very helpful in some of the major renovations i remember one time they decided to put in a big uh bay window in the living room and so one morning, one sunset, uh, we quite often would sleep on the porch mm-hmm. in the summers because it was really hot upstairs, mm-hmm. and so we would all sleep outside. And so I remember laying there on a summer morning, and all of a sudden I hear this, you know, gosh awful noise. And my dad was, you know, they decided to put this big window in, and so my dad's solution was to just get the chainsaw out, and he literally <laughs> chainsawed a giant hole in the wall, went through all the nails, didn't worry about if there was electricity because there probably wasn't because it was so old, right. and. Um, and just pop that whole wall out and there was a big hole and by the evening they put the bay window in and closed it all in but that's kind of how we did things back then so (laughs) that's awesome that is awesome yeah what are some of the memories you have of growing up kind of like the little house on the prairie you know in in that home that uh, you and your sisters or your family what what were some of the things you did together to kind of increase that familial bond Oh, let's see. Well, my sisters and I, I mean, we spent so much time just running around the property. Um, you know, we built so many tree forts. It wasn't even crazy. And they, these were just, you know, the trees would be in kind of a circle. So we'd say, oh, this is the living room and this is the kitchen. And we'd have little mud pies and little grass beds. And um, 
And I mean, we just had them all over the forest. Um, we spent a lot of time at the creek catching minnows and wading in the water. And there was a beaver pond nearby that we would go down to. And and then we we had, we had some interesting adventures. We got a cow. Mm. And we loved milking it. It was the nicest, gentlest cow ever. And so mm. us girls would all get on one of the teats and milk. So, I mean, the poor cow had like four people milking at a time. In sometimes, different directions. And yeah, yeah. Sometimes we'd have ch- uh, church youth groups come out and they'd all take turns milking the cow. I don't know how she put up with it, but she <laughs> never once, you know, she'd occasionally flip her tail at you. But other right. than that, and, um, and so my parents uh, never had like a quote unquote, a real farm. Like there's, we don't have the property size or the fencing for mm-hmm. it but they always wanted to have animals just because they both grew up on farms and they wanted to kind of have that experience so we had a cow for a while and we had chickens um, on and off I remember um, my mom was always trying to get us well we would go as as all families are we would go through cycles of being really productive and good at what we were supposed to do and then dying off so mm-hmm. there were always times when we had we were getting lazy on our chores and this and that and we would get distracted by TV a lot. Now, this was, I mean, we had, like, two channels, I think. And we were allowed to watch, like, Little House on the Prairie when we came home from school. And then mm-hmm. Star Trek, because we were big Star Trek people. Uh-huh. Um, and Saturday nights, Mom, we watched old black and white movies. Um, and literally, that was it. But that, but then uh, we would start to watch Saturday morning cartoons and this and that. And all of a sudden, we're watching more TV than Mom wanted. So. Mm-hmm. She was always trying to get rid of the TV. She'd have Dad haul it upstairs, and it was one of those giant cabinet ones right, that was right. like a million tons. And um, so one one time, she cut the cord on the TV, literally. <laughs> and then one time, she had Dad move the TV out to the chicken coop. And one day, a couple weeks later, and it was it was funny because Mom was always the one that got rid of the TV privileges, but then she was almost always the one that. <laughs> Kind of went back to him. She'd have uh-huh. a hard kind of uh, day at work, and she'd come home and say, "I just got to watch a movie." Big movie fan, and so she she said, "I just we just I got to watch a movie tonight." And so she had Dad get every extension cord he could find, <laughs> and we tro- trooped out to the chicken coop, which half of the chicken coop was full of chickens, and the other half was not. Mm-hmm. And we'd have we had had like a little playroom in there, and so there was this little couch and the chair. And we all went out there. I think it was like in early spring, so it was kind of cold. So we all had sleeping bags. We all trooped out there, and Dad hooked up the TV, and we watched we watched Star Trek in the chicken coop. And we did that for a few weeks until yeah. something else changed. So just <laughs> crazy stuff like that. Um, wow. We had great times. So who who was like the patriarch or matriarch of, of the family that you remember, a grandparent, a great-grandparent, something like that, that had a... Uh, uh, an effect on you and how you um, live your life? I mean, it's hard. My mom is just a strong personality and affects a lot of people in, mm-hmm. in great ways. And um, her and I, from the very beginning, um, I don't know if it was the medical stuff that we spent so much time together. She taught, she, she instilled in me my love of books and love of reading and love of the English language and mm-hmm. words. And from the very beginning, I mean, she had me memorizing poems at age three and Mm. read to us consistently through our lives and that was that is one of the happiest memories of all of us combined is just laying on the couch or you know doodling or playing with um, toys and having mom read books and books Mm. that were were not you know like just some were children's books but books that made us think and ask questions and Mm. and that challenged us Mm. she was never a believer in you know 
sticking to your reading level. She always wanted to read something higher and better mm-hmm. that would make us kind of wonder about what does that word mean or how why why are they doing this and and so that 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 has affected me the most in my personality. I I studied creative writing. Um, I have a master's in creative writing, and so that has gone through. And I absolutely love books and love giving recommendations, and mm. um, I love reading to my own kids. And so that that has affected me overall. I think the most. So I would say mom is probably the strongest one, um, but she couldn't do it without dad, kind of in the background support. Um, and dad was always the one that you went to if you needed, you know, a hug or needed, mm. you know. Um, just needed some fun and some comfort. Um, and so that combo worked really well for me. Mm. Um, so so I'm sure that over your life you've read thousands of books. Yeah, probably. Are there a couple that stick out to you as the most influential books that you've read? And Oh, that is, that's really hard for a reader because mm-hmm. it's like I could maybe give you one in each genre. No. Um, I mean, I, I just finished reading Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. again, which mm-hmm. I've read a number of times. That is one of my all-time favorites. So many good relationships in there and what friendship is about. And I love that um, it's a book about good and evil um, and conquering that, but in a, in a way that it's about conquering yourself and giving, you know, giving things up for others. Um, I, was just, I was just thinking about this because I had just read the third book. And at the end of the third book, um, if you've read the book and not the movie, um, they go back to their home and they found that that evil has kind of infiltrated into their home and they have to kind of get rid of it. And even though they do, um, it's not a total happy ending um, that that not everybody recovers and that there are consequences um, that evil has produced that don't just go away easily. And, yeah. I, and I really like that concept that it's not all just a happy ending and all wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow because that's not what life is. Right. And that as much as we, you know, fight against some things, that sometimes things have to be, things are sacrificed and people have to make sacrifices and um, that we need to be vigilant against things that are, that are dangerous Mm -hmm. um, to our liberty or to whatever it is, um, or to our spirits and our souls, um, because they can have lasting lasting consequences, even when we kind of get past that or over it or Mm -hmm. conquer that. And, and um, I just, I just like that. So that's one of my favorites. Yeah. So, so in that, let, let's let's dig into that a little bit. The Lord of the Rings series, the Battle of Good and Evil. So, when you're reading a book like that, um, do you automatically put yourself in the shoes of one of those sides, or are you able to put yourself in the shoes of everybody in there and say, "How does this affect me? How how would I react in this type of situation?" Sure. Share a little bit about that. Well, that depends on how well the book is written. Mm-hmm. To me, if it is a well-written book. Quite often, you do you can put yourself in multiple positions, and you can see maybe even the the evil side and, mm-hmm. and why they are that way. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you you know they, that's justified or that you agree with them. Right. Um, but yeah, I get I get pretty into books that are really well written. I'm sitting there laying on the floor crying, and and I get really <laughs> emotional about some of them. Um, mm-hmm. I feel the same way about another favorite book, which is Les Misérables. Mm-hmm. Um, and the play is just as good. Um, but that same idea that I like that Tolkien once said, you know, somebody was asking him, oh, is Lord of the Rings a, a big thing of allegory about Hitler and this and that? And he said, well, Hitler can definitely be applied to this story. But he said, I wrote a story about good and evil. You can apply 
multiple, if the book is well written, you can apply multiple good and evil to, you know, to the thing. It can apply to your own self, it can apply to your own family, it can apply to whatever time of the world is going through, because there will always be that good and evil. Yeah, yeah so I, I do put myself into that, and books make me kind of look at myself and say, am I really as good as I'm being? And am I, am I being kind of led into things that I, you know, shouldn't do or that I don't think is right. And um, because most of those books that are the good and evil, they show you just how insidious and tricky, quote unquote, evil can be. And even convincing. And, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, the, and I and another way a book has to be good for me is is the characters have to be well-rounded characters in that they have to have good and evil in them, that right. they may be tempted at times. And they might even give in to temptation at times. Mm -hmm. And that very rarely is anybody just good, just bad. I love love how you're describing this. It's awesome. I've been doing a lot of soul searching and and in the books that I read, trying to put myself in the shoes of different people and saying, is it really that far-fetched that I could make that choice in that situation? In most cases, it's not that far-fetched that I could be somebody who made a choice that was... Right. Look back on as just absolutely terrible. Yeah. But I have found as I've been doing that, that when I put myself in those shoes, I can now, if and when that situation ever comes up, go, I've already lived this. I don't need to do that again. And I'm willing to pay the consequences to make the, what I assume is the right choice here instead of this choice. It's easy, but it's not the right choice in the end, you know? There was a quote by, I think, Patricia McLaughlin, who's an author, and she mm-hmm. said um, in one of my books, and it says, fact and fiction are different truths. Mm-hmm. And for me, that is totally true mm-hmm. with, with, with writing, mm-hmm. and especially fiction, is that I find just as much truth in fiction, well-written fiction, as I would in you know, autobiography or whatever, right. that you can put yourself in any situation if it's well-written. Mm-hmm. And... And I still do, I, I, I must say, I still enjoy just the story for the story, too. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely, like, I'm, I'm not one of those people that feels like I have to analyze every single, you know, story I read. Sometimes, you know, yeah, you can take the Oz books and put this feminist reading over the top of them. But I just like them because they're just fun books. But right. They're fun stories, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I can do that, but I also like to analyze them to a certain extent. And as I, obviously, as I get older, books some books that I read as a kid might feel differently. And so I love rereading too, because mm-hmm. at different times in your lives, you see, it's kind of yeah. like the scriptures, you, yeah. you, a certain thing stick out more. All, all the stories that have to do with what it's like to be a parent right. makes much more <laughs> dramatic impact to me now that I have children and I'm trying to figure out how to yeah. communicate with them and teach them without doing too much or too little. And yeah. Um, and yeah, and like you said, you don't have to. Books let you experience something and see see consequences and what happens without you know literally going through them yourself. And yeah. So I do think that yeah, I feel like I've lived a thousand lifetimes, and and uh, you know that doesn't mean I don't certainly make plenty of mistakes. Right, right. Oh, <laughs> but, absolutely. Um, but books have definitely always been. Um, I you know some people say books are an escape and. In some ways, I, I suppose when I was younger, it felt like that sometimes, just to get out of life when it was a little crazy. Yeah. But um, it's it's very much about life for me. It's not an escape because mm. it's it's like living another life and yeah. So so in coming some, back to your own and seeing 
how they how they, how they relate yeah and how they're really the same story so there are times when now all of my daughters are <laughs> like really into reading things and sometimes especially with my oldest um i see it as a total escape Sure. I need to leave reality, and I don't <laughs> yes. ever want to see reality yeah, again the rest yeah. of my life. <laughs> and sometimes that's frustrating for me. Yeah. How would you suggest that one deal with, yes, getting into a, a book is a great thing, yes. but also dealing with reality? How would you suggest that somebody would address that yeah. line, I guess? Well, first of all, addressing it for an older child, good luck with that. Yeah. I don't know either. <laughs> um I do remember a couple a couple things just as I was growing up and would get into those moments of total um, just total obsession with a story or a book, and I still have those moments a little bit, but I guess I'm getting older and really need my sleep, so <laughs> <laughs> um, I can put the book down ninety percent of the time and say you know mostly because what it is is because I have other people that rely on me, mm. and I'm so thankful to have families. Yeah. And to have kids especially, because I know I got to wake up in the morning and make them breakfast. And I could lay in bed and let them just get cereal. Mm-hmm. But there's a you know level of, of love and communication there that helps me just say, okay, this book is not my real life. Mm-hmm. And I can, it's always going to be there and come back to it. Um, and as a, as a child and young adult, I didn't have that as much, especially when I was on my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, still had a great family, but nobody that was relying on me. So I could stay up till you know three or four in the morning, finish a book, and I, the only consequence would be I'd be tired at work. Right. But that's a little bit different than literally mm-hmm. needing to drive your children safely to school, you know, sort right. of thing. So that that is just something that I've come to as I've grown up. Um, I remember one time I got really um, frustrated with my sister who borrowed one of my books and kind of broke the binding because. Mm. Because of the physicalness of a book, I don't I don't use like electronic devices because I just love the smell of the book. I love seeing how many pages I've gone through. I love just looking at the words and the illustrations. So I love physical books, and so even then I started collecting books. And she had ruined the book, or kind of broken it. It wasn't ruined. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, my mom kind of pulling me aside and saying, "Listen, books are about reading. They're not about the book." Mm-hmm. And and you're encouraging your sister to read a good story. The physical part of it is not what it's about. Mm. And, and she does need to treat it with respect. But you need to understand that loan, you know, loaning a book, you're, you're trying to share a story with somebody. You're not, it's not the physical thing. Mm. And so that was always one that stuck in my head. That, you know, if I lose a book or a book doesn't come back exactly like I want it, um, mm. you know, technically you can always probably replace it. Yeah. But you can't replace that experience that you're giving somebody of a story. Um, and then, and then my mom always was just um, she'd pull that she'd pull that physical therapy mode in. Yeah. She'd just be she you know well, we'd be reading under the covers at night, and she'd be like, "You need to get your sleep." <laughs> so um, that's the only thing I've I've um, been able to talk to my kids about is just that you have to have a balance in all things. Hmm. And you know, if you're pulling into a book so much that it's it's pulling you away from fam- you know major family time mm-hmm. or making you or making you cranky so that you're not mm-hmm. really being a part of that enjoyably that's a signal that it's become a little bit too much and really that can be applied to all sorts of oh, things yeah. <laughs> you know books video games food food oh 
food. Yeah, that's um, mine. You know, one of mine. Yeah, anything yeah. that uh, that can distract from reality. Addictions. Yeah. I, I mean, I know people that you could say are addicted to books, oh, yeah. you know, just mm-hmm. as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. And you definitely can get into that. I, I, did, I do have to laugh, though, because some people will... When I say, you know, I, I probably read a book a week or so, you mm-hmm. know, like, how do you have time for that? Right. And I kind of have to laugh at that because these are the same people that they make time for crafts or they make time for video games or they make time for, whatever. you know, sewing, whatever yeah. it is. And those are all great things. For me, that's, that's my passion. And so I make the time. I take a book wherever I go. I'm reading anytime I'm waiting for my kids. I'm reading at school. I'm reading in the car. And so I think it's funny that people say that because you're like, if that's what you love, you make time for it. Everybody right. makes time for something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, again, learning that balance of when to say, okay, there are other things in life. Right. So what are you reading right now? Well, I'm in a book group with some, um, some, some ladies mm-hmm. older than me, and we have a great time. And so I'm reading a book for that called Sold on a Monday. About I'm not honestly sure what it is because I haven't started it. Mm-hmm. And I have a list of my long because I've been reading The Lord of the Rings for oh, so yeah. for, yeah. for the last couple of months um, that I've kind of been putting that. And I think, uh, well, I'm reading, like I said, to my kids, too. We're mm-hmm. reading Cole. Cole and I are reading White Fang, and Brynn and I are read, reading The Little House on the Prairie series. Mm-hmm. And, and those are great to reread with your kids. Yeah. You get a different perspective. They ask mm-hmm. different questions. and. Yeah. Cool. And my level of reading to my kids is Jimmy B. Jones. <laughs> and and you know, they're okay. past that. And it's well, so sad. Yeah, I know. I love the well, I'll give you some recommendations because yeah. <laughs> there are some great stories to read together. Yeah. But you know, I you know whatever level you're at, reading yeah. is great. So. Yeah, I can't wait to read to my grandkids the Junie B. Jones because I got there all the voices yeah. and the attitudes and everything. I love it. <laughs> so, so you married a pretty cool guy, a guy that I like yes. hanging out with. <laughs> Tell me how you guys met and what uh, how how things developed sure. to where you um, are today. Well, he he likes to make sure that I say it properly, but he is uh, four and a half years younger than I am. <laughs> he always makes me say the half. I don't know if he's trying to rub that in or that he's an accountant and <laughs> he has to be very exact when it comes to numbers. Mm-hmm, so probably mm-hmm. a little bit of both. Right. Um, so I was in the singles ward at church and I was, um, like 28, Mm -hmm. which in our church is old Mm -hmm. (laughs) for getting married. Most of my friends and my sisters had all been married, you know, 19, 21, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't, you know, we were all wondering, is she just going to be an old maid? I, I didn't date a lot. I Mm -hmm. was socially awkward to a certain extent didn't care a hoot what I looked like and my disability you know I don't know how much that affected that yeah. and that would that would be a kind of a big thing to kind of get past and take on right if you're serious about a relationship and so um, I had you know but I had lots of great friends and most of my friends honestly were guys but not mm-hmm. interested in me right so um, we met in the singles ward he came home from his mission and I being the somewhat judgmental person I am Um, saw him drive a sports car Mm -hmm. and was, was just, I just rolled my eyes. I was like, these young kids nowadays, which is funny, (laughs) you know, these young kids nowadays, they just come home from their mission and blow whatever money they still have left on a sports car of all things. And I'm Mm -hmm. rolling my eyes. And this, granted, most of the guys at that time that I knew were the type that, you know, would 
do a semester of school, and then they'd go down to Utah with a bunch of friends and sell pest control and blow all their money on pizza and video games. <laughs> so I was looking, and I had you know finished school and was working full time and had my own apartment. And I and what were you doing for work? And then, and then I worked. Right um, it was mostly just um, personal assistant, secretarial type okay. stuff, um, and that, that's pretty much what I did um, for most of those years. Okay. Um, and so. I'm, I'm, I'm an organized person, so I like organizing other people's lives, um, but I didn't want to work, you know, forever. Um, but I wasn't looking to put somebody else through school. I wasn't looking to take care of somebody, honestly. Right, right. I mean, I just was kind of beyond that. And I, But I was honestly willing to try just about everything. I went on every date somebody set me up with. My sister and her husband took me aside and very kindly kind of made the point that... Um, inner beauty is very important Mm -hmm. but it's okay to have to try to make yourself look nice on the outside to reflect that especially Mm -hmm. when you're trying to attract a mate they just said they just said we're just gonna be honest men are physical they look at the physical Mm -hmm. they can't that's how they're wired and so you want to attract somebody you may have to work on the outside as well as the inside and um which was a great conversation because they're absolutely right and that's what i tell some young women nowadays is it's okay to look nice. You don't have to spend millions of hours on your on your looks, mm-hmm. but we need to treat our body with respect. We need to dress nicely. Mm-hmm. We need to, and, and it's not just about attracting other people, but it just I think it just shows the Lord the respect you have for your own body mm-hmm. and for yourself. And so that was kind of a one of those one of the things that led to all this. So, anyways, by then I had gotten rid of my glasses and grown my hair out a little bit longer, and and they took me shopping and. I actually wore makeup every so often mm. and anyways so um so anyways he came along and I and I thought well he's just this young kid buying a sports car and then we were going to a camp out or a bonfire night mm-hmm. and um he didn't want to leave his car at the waiting point so he he said well I can drive somebody so I was like well mm-hmm. I may not like you know this guy but right. I can ride in a sports car yeah. so why not so I jumped in and on the way up, we were taught. He was talking about how he'd already um, put himself through a couple of years of school, and he knew what he wanted to be. He wanted mm-hmm. to be an accountant, and he worked three jobs and had been living out of his home um, before his mission for a while. So, and so I was like, "Hey, this guy actually is pretty responsible." And, mm-hmm. um, and then he kind of got guilt tripped by by a friend of ours into taking me out for my birthday, <laughs> and then he didn't call back, mm-hmm. and um, I kind of said well that was you know that was nice it was another one but mm-hmm. you know wasn't really expecting anything and and meanwhile he assumed that because I had so many guy friends that I was interested in one of them because uh-huh. that's the only people I hung out with so three months later or so he made um the mistake of saying at another bonfire where there was a bunch of girls including me kind of surrounding him said something about well I just don't date much because there's just not that many opportunities and he's and surrounded by see, a bunch exactly, of girls. Exactly. You can see all the girls just like want to like just strangle him. And I, and I, I tell you this day, I'm pretty vocal and I'm pretty upfront about things. But in the matter of, of guys at the time, I would, mm-hmm. I would never have done this in my wildest dreams. But I think, I think the Lord was, you know, kind of giving me a nudge. And I just turned to him and just very boldly and directly just said, well, you're obviously not asking the right people. Mm-hmm. And he said, and he said later that he said that was, he, his eyes just kind of got big. He's like, whoa, she's, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think she's trying to tell me something. And so mm-hmm. he took me out shortly later again. Um, and we were engaged, I don't know, three, four months later. And mm-hmm. then we got married about nine months later. Uh-huh. 
so yeah, it was, he's great and he's tons of fun. Um, we're very different people. Mm-hmm. I love to read and he doesn't like to read at all and I can't do math to save my life and he's mm-hmm. an accountant. Um, but we balance each other out pretty well. And you know, he he took on a lot of stuff with me as far as the physical nature. I mean, he, I love that he works from home because he does so much around the house. He can unload the groceries for me anytime I need. Um, and, and, you know, just stuff like that. So um, we were pretty, we didn't know, there was a lot of question mark about whether anything had affected ability to have children. Yeah. So that was really pretty much just like a, a total unknown. Mm-hmm. We didn't know how any of that would go. Um, and so that was just a real kind of, well, we'll jump in and see how this thing works. Right, right. And, um, and that's a big, that's a big, um, it is commitment and question mark yeah. for someone, especially, yeah. especially someone in the church who's like, Hey, family is very important. Right. Exactly. You know? yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, I mean, we knew everything worked fairly normally up to that point, but right, it right. was, and, and it was all just kind of a guessing game as to what, had, what would be affected and what wouldn't. And, we got really lucky and um, didn't have any problem getting pregnant, and um, the both births went pretty darn smoothly for what it mm. could be. So, and you've got two kids. How old are they? Yep, Cole is twelve now, awesome. and um, that's been interesting transition into some teenagehood. Mm-hmm. And Bryn is ten, so not far behind, and she might be starting that early too. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. So. I feel that I'm preparing for some tough years, but um, they're great kids. And yeah. I love up until about maybe 11, I love that age of 9, 10, 11, where they're, they can kind of take care of themselves mm-hmm. for the most part. They, you know, when I'm sick, they, nothing falls apart. They right. can kind of survive without me, but we can have normal conversations and we can kind of talk a little bit deeply about things here and there and, mm-hmm. and they can understand my reasoning for doing certain things um, mm-hmm. or why I make them do certain things, even though they don't like it and they still whine about it. At least, you know, they understand it. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really great. They're super fun kids and they take, take good care of me. So are there any other stories or experiences that you feel like you'd like to share with me at this time that have oh, happened man. in your life that are like interesting yeah. or yeah. like hinge pin moments in your life? Maybe. When I was in college, mm-hmm. I decided that I wanted to study abroad. Mm-hmm. And with my disability, we, it, that was a big question mark, whether how well that would go. Um, and so I, we did some research into what would be the best situation, and, and we found one in Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got to study there for uh, three months, just for a, a semester. But Where did you study um, there in Wales? It was, it's a town called Aberystwyth. Um, it's right on the Cardiff Sea, and so it's, it's kind of like a, it's got a university there, but it's also kind of considered a vacation mm-hmm. little town on the on the ocean, mm-hmm. um, and we picked it because I could, it was kind of a very small campus that I could get around on pretty well, um, and I also really wanted to be immersed in whatever, in the culture I was going into, as mm-hmm. far as I didn't want to live with a bunch of other Americans, and so right, this right. is one there, you, you were residing with, with other students. And that was a great experience as far as that was kind of one of the first times that I really was totally on my own and and having to haul all my luggage myself and get around on public transportation and all those things where, you know, a lot of people wouldn't really flinch at that. But it was, you know, something that was we had to prepare for and try to figure out how that would work. And there were definitely times when it was it was tough, but I, I, I definitely was when I was a kid kind of a homebody. I loved being at home and I loved 
you know, just kind of the ease of that to a certain extent. I was not one to go out a lot, and but I'm very sociable. So mm-hmm. later that kind of came in, and I love you know dancing and doing all sorts of things. Um, and so, the, but that was kind of my first real experience of really kind of being on my own and being responsible for myself. And and it was a it was a great experience. It was um, I loved the people there, the girls there that I was with, and just lots of kind of eye-opening experiences about mm. different life and different culture and yeah so what was the uh most abrupt awakening you had with different lives and different cultures that you were exposed to while you were there while I was there just the all of the different people that I lived with there were I had uh seven flatmates um and I mean we had one from the Seychelles Islands England's very small and so it doesn't take a very far distance to have pretty different it's like America but like squished into very small locations so You'd have somebody that lived in Birmingham, a friend of mine lived in Birmingham, um, and she'd never been to London, England, which is pretty much Mecca for me. Right. She'd never been there. It was like a it was like a 30-minute train ride. Uh-huh. I mean, I was just floored. Uh-huh. And then you had one from um, the southern, you know, southern England and northern England, and they have very different, you know, one was more, as I would say, at posh mm-hmm. than the other. Um, we had one from Wales. And so it was just a great kind of mix of people mm-hmm. and learning a lot. I remember the the first time I met them, I was so nervous. And, of course, they were too. But I just figured it's their country. You know, why would they be nervous to meet a foreigner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're British. Mm-hmm. And British, um, that they would say this themselves. They were always making me talk to, like, the cab drivers and stuff because mm-hmm. they did not want to talk to a stranger. Whereas mm-hmm. the American, who is completely a foreigner, right. is uh, perfectly happy to talk. Um, to anybody, that's kind of how they felt about about right, right. me, and I kind of felt about them. So um, the first time I met them, I had arrived early, so I was by myself, and then and they all moved in, and you know we pass in the hall and say hi, but like we were both like how you know how do you kind of break that first? Mm-hmm. And so one of the girls bravely came to my door and said, you know we're having a cup of tea in the kitchen if if you want to join us. And of course, my heart fell because I don't drink tea. Right. And I was like, you know, the very first thing that they ask, and I'm going to have to say no. And so I said, well, I don't drink tea, which yeah, is like, unheard what? of in England. <laughs> I mean, her face was just like, what the? Um, you don't drink water? <laughs> and then I paused, and then I could see that she was going to leave. And so I was like, I can't, you know, I can't mm-hmm. just like close the door. So I was like, but, but I drink hot chocolate. Do you have hot chocolate? And and she's like, yeah, yeah, we do. And so I came in and, and we just started chatting and um, we were just all super good friends mm-hmm. from the minute we met. And then I remember a couple of days later, we just sat down and I had, you know, all these different words that the that they use compared to what we use. Mm-hmm. And so we just sat there for hours and I was, you know, I would say, okay, well, what do you say for this word? And they mm-hmm. would tell me and I'd giggle about something. And and so it was, it was just great to, again, that, that English language and, and how you speak differently about certain things and what things mean and, and just laughing at each other and the funny funny things that would come up. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's super cool. Is that something you would um, encourage your own kids to do? Hey, go, go yeah. on an adventure like this. Oh, definitely. This. Yeah. Definitely. I hope, I hope so. Um, we're not, we're not big travelers. My husband's not a big traveler and mm-hmm. I just physically, it's hard for me to do, mm-hmm. especially on my own. Right. But I do. It's really important, I think, to have a little bit of that. I don't. I don't believe that you need to, you know, be off gallivanting. You know, 
every year to some big vacation. That, right. that, that's not it. But but I do think it's important to kind of see beyond your own comfort zone and your own life a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and that, that moment of kind of being on your own, really. And mm-hmm. mom and dad aren't near enough to really rescue you, so you have to figure it out yourself. And um, I mean, but uh, but really, it was pretty cushy. I mean, I was I went to the school, so they kind of keep track of you. And mm-hmm. then having the church just makes a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, we were able to contact the branch president um, before I even went. They offered for me to stay at their house for the holidays, um, and they you know they picked me up and they fed me and they put me to bed and they mm-hmm. got me to school and um, you know they would pick me up for church and um, you know went to the temple together and um, uh, they were just the cutest old couple. I love them. Um, and they pretty much were my grandparents kind of took mm. care of me while I was there. Uh, yeah. So I, I, and then after, after Wales, I took a quick week long trip up to Ireland with a mm. professor and his group. And that was more like a tourist, like see all the sites in uh, Northern in Ireland, um, which was great. Ireland is like was it British Ireland or Northern Ireland? We went to both. Okay. But Ireland is exactly what you imagine. Mm. Like where we went is exactly what you imagine. Like Wales is is great, but it's it's there's not a lot there. It's mm. a lot of sheep and okay. rock walls. That's all. <laughs> I mean, there's not much in Wales, and mm-hmm. it's beautiful. But mm-hmm. other than that, there's not a lot of sights to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ireland. Ireland is like you walk into the pub to have dinner and they literally have people, you know, singing ballads in the pub. It's exactly like, to me, it felt exactly like what I imagined Ireland would be. So uh, we met him up there. Well, I crossed over on the ferry, the -hmm. channel, and it was really super, the weather was super bad. So they kind of transferred us to a bigger ferry and it took longer and super seasick and so I got there and we had missed I had missed the bus that would was going to take me to where they actually were Mm -hmm. so I was in Dublin and they were um, in Galway and so I was facing having to spend the night in a completely foreign city Mm -hmm. and I and I had forgotten the whole concept of British Ireland and Northern Ireland Mm. and all of a sudden I didn't have the right currency And I, I started to kind of try to think, oh, maybe I can sleep and, you know, just in the train station. Mm-hmm. And luckily I didn't do that because uh, I learned later that the Dublin train station is not the safest place to be spending the night as a young female. And <laughs> um, But I just realized it wasn't going to happen. And so I called the branch president back in Wales and he gave me the information of somebody in the branch president in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And it was it was probably like 11 o'clock at night and him and his wife and they got their son out of bed to come get me and they drove me to their house and they put me in the kid's bed um because again I was you know kind of jet lagged and tired Mm -hmm. from everything and not feeling well and just put me to bed let me sleep off fed me breakfast in the morning took me back to the train station and that was it you know and it was Mm -hmm. like but it you know it was like life-saving to Mm -hmm. me at that time I mean it just you know that you could do that with perfect strangers and that they would be happy to help you and go to all that trouble just for one night you know just to help somebody for one night and so um that that was one that stuck into my head very much is that something that you have been able to or look to pay forward I guess hey perfect stranger in need yeah let me help you yeah I do try when somebody is having a hard time just you know whatever you need to do um to help out as much as possible in a way that's helpful, you know, mm-hmm. and I found with my disability um, that the communication is the key. Um, 
if you just ask, like, what would be most helpful mm. is a lot better for me. Because some stuff I don't need help with, but people assume that I would. Yeah. And that's fine. I never turn help down. Like, I, I'm grateful that people are willing. I, I would never make people feel bad for either asking about my disability mm-hmm. or for trying to help, even if it's not in a very helpful way. But the ones that that help the most are the ones that help in a way that really is helpful to what I need at the time. And so I think that's the same way to find out when somebody's in you know in trouble or needing help, what do they actually need? And I'm pretty blunt. I'm like, listen, mm-hmm. just tell me, just tell me exactly what you need. Like, mm-hmm. if I can't do it, I I will tell you that. But right. if I can in any way, like it's okay to ask for help. And that has been something that I've definitely learned from having a disability. Mm-hmm. Is you you do not have a choice in humbling yourself at times and putting mm-hmm. yourself in a position where you have to ask for help. And I find that I'm a little bit stubborn in that area on other things that I've been able to do totally fine Mm -hmm. up until, you know, if I, you know, hurt my arms, I hate somebody having to like carry stuff for me because I wasn't going to do that. But I've had no problem asking people, you know, for a piggyback ride, honestly, if that's Mm -hmm. what it takes or to Mm -hmm. drive, you know, if I'm, if I'm not being able to do that. So I'm very grateful because I, I think personality wise, I think I would be pretty, pretty stubborn and pretty prideful at times and Mm -hmm. pretty kind of, I can do everything myself um, sort of person if I didn't have that automatic kind of built-in humbling and, you know, having to kind of ask for help. And sometimes in ways that, you know, is embarrassing, honestly, at times, or just kind of, you know, just like, I can't believe I have to ask somebody to do this for me, but yeah. it's what it is. And yeah. and mine is, is, I mean, far less than some people have to deal with. I'm so grateful for what I do, my, my own challenges, because I don't want somebody else's. And, um, and I would not be the same person without my disability. So when was the last time you looked heavenward and said, why did you give me this challenge in my life? Disability wise, it's been a very long time. Hmm. Um, because I, I know how good it is for me. And mm-hmm. I, again, I can say it, it made me who I am. I mean, um, in, in my close circles, my kind of funny nickname is Penguin because mm-hmm. I had a kid that one time called me a penguin thinking mm-hmm. that was going to be an insult. And I turned it around and wrote a paper about penguins and found out how cool penguins are. And now mm-hmm. I, I have no problem with that, um, uh, acknowledging that I'm perfectly fine with that. So in that you know, having dealt with it all my life, I don't know anything different. I, I look at people who are healthy and well for half of their life and then get something with hip, something huge. And I think I'm, I'm not that strong. Maybe I would be, you know, you can't ever say that, but I think, um, because I've never had anything different, I really don't know what I'm missing, Mm. but there are times I, I wouldn't say that I've ever like, I ever am like, why did you give this to me? But there are still times, there's a few things where I still, you know, I, I look at my kids running track mm. and I think, I wonder what it would be like to really be able to run mm. without ever getting tired. Mm. Um, and someday that'll happen in the next life. I have no doubt about it. We'll run races. Um, and I think I look at, I honestly, uh, my, my one thing, <laughs> my one kind of beauty thing that I still can't quite get over is wanting to have cute shoes. Mm. You can't wear cute shoes when they have to be supportive and cover your whole foot. And, you know, there's yeah. just, I haven't had cute shoes in forever. And, um, and that's something that I still every so often, you know, kind of like envy, mm. you have that little moment of envy. And then I think, you know, that's 
such a small such a small thing and um and you know but honestly i i believe that heavenly father loves us enough that even in those small things someday i'll have some cute shoes you know and he'll be just as happy about me having cute shoes as (laughs) being able to (laughs) run and that is a small thing but i i do think you know heavenly father you know knows all those little regrets and all those little you know sadnesses in our lives that we can't do something or don't have something but yet so much I've gained from that. I mean, so many friends and, um, you know, so many good life lessons that, like I said, I don't think I would be, I, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing is my husband says he is a realist and I call him a pessimist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's our constant thing. Right. Um, I don't, I honestly, seeing friends and family members have depression and going through anxiety and stuff, I honestly have never really felt like that. Never really, and and I know that that is a mental disability sometimes. But I think that that if I was going to be depressed, I would have been depressed from. A, I had every reason to be sad and depressed and down on my life from a very early age, and I never had that. And so whether that's chemical that I just didn't have that, but had everything else, or that because of the disability, I had to learn very early on. You better find something good. Mm-hmm. in this or you're not going to be happy you know because you could it you could look at that and say my gosh you know that's a horrible life for a kid um and so I honestly have been I'm a very positive person mm-hmm. and I always see the good in people and things and sometimes you know that might get me in trouble here and there believing in everything and everybody but right, right. um but I am very grateful for that because especially as as the world goes the way it is, it's easy to get caught up on the, in that. And um, so I'm grateful that that is not my challenge yeah. because it's a hard challenge. I see friends and family going through that, and it's not easy. And So physical physical disability for me, it's like people can see it. They can acknowledge it's there. Mm-hmm. You can say, you see what I have. Here's what I need. Here's mm-hmm. what I don't need. Here's how I can get some help. And that's a lot, a lot easier than social emotional. mental emotional struggles yeah. where it's a lot harder to we're getting better about it but mm-hmm. it's a slow right it's a slow process so oh cool so any other words of wisdom <gasps> that you'd like to share with me your kids grandkids great grandkids a <laughs> hundred years down the road hey, yeah grandma Kara, i want to hear <laughs> what she had to say hmm? Uh, one of my favorite quotes. It sounds depressed, but this is this is my. Life. It sounds depressing, but I find a positive spin in it, which is um, it makes me laugh too. Um, life is like a box of grape nuts. You open the box, no grapes, no nuts. And I always love that because you can look at that in a negative way. There, you didn't get what you want, but I always look at it as but you get something, mm-hmm. and it's probably better than what you wanted. It, you know, and so it's like, yeah, you open the box of life and. It's not what you expect, and I don't know any of us who have grown up <laughs> or gotten mm-hmm. married or had children that we are living the life that we expected to live. Right. But I'm so grateful for the Lord's generosity and intelligence to know that that is not what I really needed and what would really make me find mm-hmm. joy because, you know, the life that I kind of expected, I think, a, a little bit superficial. You can't help being superficial and mm-hmm. kind of selfish when you're literally on your own and by yourself to a certain extent. So I think that's normal to feel that way when you're um, 
teenager and young adult and your life is all about you and so again I'm grateful for those families that you don't I you know again I was kind of I kind of assumed at that stage that I might be an old maid and my whole family was kind of thinking yeah that might happen for her she may not be able to find somebody that you know is gonna is gonna work for her and and so I'm so grateful that the Lord surprised me with that um and gave me the blessing of children and so I think I'm grateful that I didn't get what I wanted so I think I want to go with that box of grape nuts thing for just a mm-hmm. second so you open up the box there's no grapes there's no nuts what is there in your life when you open up that box of grape nuts sure there's just a there's just so much more depth as far as reading the a book and a story versus living it and you know I just didn't expect all that and the in the and the hard moments you know nobody wants the hard moments um, but as we talked about earlier you've got to have those challenges and I look back and each one as I've gotten through and passed each one I can then look back and say okay that made me a better stronger more forgiving more communicative um, kinder hopefully and so and the and the the relationships the relationship with husband and wife and learning how to cleave into them and make those adaptations um even though you love your family you came from too and Mm -hmm. and how to balance all that out which is still you know a work in progress and then with your kids nobody can tell you this before you have them and I know it's it and I'm sure people roll their eyes just like I used to Mm -hmm. about like it can't you know like we've heard this before but you literally have no concept of the depth of your love until you have children I think because you would literally do anything for them but you can't do everything for them and that for me is is that the the ultimate struggle you know and because of that how much that applies every day every day to my relationship with Heavenly Father Hmm. and how he must how he must weep when we have to struggle even though he knows that we're going to be okay or even if we're not okay that we'll eventually figure out things and um, it just gives me so much more of kindness towards myself knowing that he looks at me as his child and he's never you know he's never really officially disappointed in me I mean, I'm, I, there are moments when I'm disappointed in, a, in an action my child does, but I'm never, I'm never disappointed in them as a person. And no matter what they do, you know, I would never not love them. And so um, that has been probably the biggest thing that I didn't realize I was missing hmm. is that ability to to to, to really be completely unselfish in things and that and that process of of learning that as you go because there are still moments when i'm selfish (laughs) you know at the expense of my children just as much as anybody else um thank you kara you're welcome this has been fun yeah there you go thank you to kara hauser and to each of you for spending some time with me and sharing with me some things that are important to kara And hopefully are some things that will be meaningful and helpful to each of you, the listeners, throughout your lives. That's really the purpose of this Journey Through Life podcast is to um, allow people to share things that are most important to them and get extraordinary stories out of ordinary people. Remember, if 
this or any other any other episode of the Journey Through Life podcast has been meaningful to you, please go and like us on Facebook or on Instagram. Check us out at our website, jtlpod.com, and follow us. Please review and rate the podcast and support us by supporting our partners, A Life Untold. Go to alifeuntold.com. Use coupon code Justin at checkout, J-U-S-T-I-N, and save 10%. For this episode of In Their Own Words, the little segment that follows the Journey Through Life podcast, I'm super happy to announce that Kara Hauser has a relative, her grandfather, Keith Howard Dixon. Now, Keith recorded his life story, and Kara is going to read a part of his experiences in World War II, actually where he got injured and was released to come home at the end of his tour in the war. If you also have a life story from one of your departed ancestors that you would like to have read at the end of one of these episodes, you can send it to me at the JTL podcast at gmail.com or you can get to us at jtlpod.com. This is a section of my grandfather's life history, Keith Howard Dixon, who served a year or two in World War II in various areas of Italy and France and was wounded a couple of times. And this is the uh, story of him getting wounded and the process of him finally getting home and all that that entailed. We got up to Rammersville, France, which was the end of my duty at the front. We were to make a push one day and take this hill away from the Germans. We went in but didn't have much resistance. We had the hill secured by early afternoon. We were tired. I was a squad leader at this time, and another squad leader and I spent most of the afternoon building us a foxhole. We dug down quite a ways and covered it with logs, some dirt, and pine needles. We had it pretty well waterproofed. We were finished just before dark. I sat down just at the edge of my foxhole, just started to reach down for my rations to have some supper, and a shell came in and exploded in a tree right above me. I heard it come in, but it was just so fast that you couldn't move to protect yourself. I flipped my head up as I heard it and saw it explode out of the corner of my eye. The next thing I knew, I was laying out on the flat ground. I was coming up on my left elbow, and I wondered if I was hit. Then I felt the blood run down the left side of my cheek, so I knew I was hit some way. I hollered for a medic. I saw my buddy was also bleeding on the left side of his face. Somebody came over to us and told us exactly where we were hit and put bandages on us to keep the dirt out. We got up and walked back to battalion aid. Before we got up, the shelling started up. It was evidently the beginning of a pretty major battle. Things were getting pretty hot. By the time I got to battalion aid, I had lost so much blood I couldn't walk. So they put me on a stretcher and we left the front. We got back to a hospital sometime during the night. All I can remember is being on a table and moving us from one place to another. When the cold air would hit at me, it would wake me up a little. I remember seeing the moon. It was a nice, clear night. Before I left the front, we had a medic named Schmitty who looked at me and said I had a hole in the left side of my face and a hole under my nose. They took part of the shrapnel out of my face that night. The next thing I remember is coming to, laying on a bed, and a nurse was sitting at the side of the bed trying to wake me up and get me a drink of water. She had hold of my hand, shaking my hand and arm, trying to wake me. I was so thirsty I could spit cotton, but I couldn't wake up. I finally got awake enough so she could get me a drink of water. Then she left. That was the first time I had been that close to woman for months and months. After a while, a couple of gals came by and were watching me for a minute. I was thirsty and tried to get them to come over and give me a drink, but they didn't know what I meant. They took me and this other guy back to an airplane and flew us back to Marseille. 
When we got on the airplane, they gave us a Hershey bar. I hadn't seen a Hershey bar for a long time, but I couldn't even bite it. My face was so sore and swollen. I just broke off pieces and let them melt on my tongue. When we got to the hospital at Marseille, we heard there was another fellow who had been hit by that same shell. We hunted him up and found he had lost a big chunk out of the left side of his hip, bone and all. My buddy lost the lower part of his left jaw. We found out that the shell had killed four, and three of us had made it back. I laid around the hospital for about a month. For the first few days, I was too weak to even eat, and when I got strong enough, I didn't even want to go to the mess hall. I took all my meals right there in the ward. The only time I went to the mess hall was the day before I sailed to come home. I went down and ate a meal. I got paid at that time, too, the first time in quite a while. I had $309 in back pay, and all they had in American currency was $1 bills, so I had to take French francs and change it when I got back to the States. I'll never forget the day I found out I was going home. I had to go see the doctor every day and have my sinuses irrigated, cleaned out, shots, and disinfectant. I went over this one day, and after the treatment by Dr. Armstrong, he came over and said, Well, I guess we're going to send you home. We've done about all we can here for you, so we'll have to send you back to the States. We got up Christmas morning and boarded the ship, a light troop carrier, to come home. Later on that afternoon, we headed home. Most of the voyage was pretty good coming back, except we got out in the North Atlantic and hit a big storm. For several days, the water was so rough, we couldn't even go down to eat. They passed up hot coffee and sandwiches. It was so rough, we couldn't hold a dish on a table. We would have to hang on. They told us one day we would be hitting port tomorrow, so at 4 a.m. the next morning, I was out on deck with all the clothes I could find because it was awfully cold. I wanted to be sure and see the lights of the city. Eventually, they started to show up. I remember getting closer to the lights and coming into the harbor by the Statue of Liberty again. We hit the dock, and there were all kinds of gray ladies there that had booths set up, and we could have all we wanted to eat or drink. Everything was real nice. We got on a bus, and they took us to Holloran General Hospital for about three days. I had a hard time getting used to the beds. They were nice and soft, and half the guys ended up sleeping on the floor because it was so soft. We weren't used to that kind of stuff, pillows, sheets. I'll never forget our first meal we went to. We went down to the mess hall, and ordinarily the enlisted men got in a line, went through the kitchen like a snack bar. But here we went right to a table, and there were ladies that would come and give you a choice of three dishes. They also had nine quarts of nice cold milk on each table. One fellow picked up a quart and said, Can I drink that whole thing? The lady said, You bet, and when you finish, I'll get you another one. He did. They even had tablecloths and curtains. I couldn't get over them. I hadn't seen anything like that for more than a year. Sometime during the day, I went to a barber shop and had a good old-fashioned straight-edge shave. I told myself I'd made it back. I was going to have a good straight-edge shave. It sure felt nice. We were issued new uniforms. Could have gone into New York City, but the uniforms stunk of mothballs, so I didn't go in. We were only there three days. They put us on a hospital train. We went from New York to San Francisco and ended up at Dibble General Hospital at Palo Alto near Stanford University. And that was where I was to, to stay for about a year. Marjorie and Arvin lived in San Mateo at the time, so I was going to go see them and surprise them. They didn't know I was there. So I grabbed the bus and found my way to their apartment. When I got to the building, the thumb rest on the door handle had been sawed off, and I wondered how come they were dumb enough to do that. So I got my knife out, picked the lock, and went inside. I found Marjorie's apartment and rang the bell. You can imagine her astonishment when she opened the door. She wanted to know how I got in. I told her, and she said, you're supposed to press that button and ring the bell up here, and then we answer you and decide whether we want to let you in or not. Well, I didn't know that, but we had a good visit. I went into their place about every weekend after that. They called Dad, and he came down to see me. He came on the bus and didn't get there till late in the evening. They brought him over to the hospital about 10 that night. It was after visiting hours, so he couldn't come back in the ward. I had to go to the lobby. I came down the hall and around the corner, and there he was, him and Marjorie and Arvin. He saw me and came over and had to give me a big hug and a kiss, and he cried. That was the first time we had seen each other in over two years. 
I really can't remember the first operation I had there at Dibble. I had about four operations in the year I was there. They did plastic surgery on the side of my face, fixed my lip, and some work on my sinus. They would do an operation, and when they figured I had recuperated and was back up, they would do another one. It was about every three months. There were lots of blind boys at that hospital. It was an EENT hospital. They did lots of marvelous work on pl plastic surgery. I've helped many blind boys eat and find their way around there. After they got most of my operations over, the doctor called me in there where five or six doctors were. They went over my history and showed what had been done. They said as far as they were concerned, they were through with me unless I wanted to have my nose straightened. I said I wanted my nostrils fixed so I could breathe. If they could do that, fine. If not, forget it. They said yes, they could fix that. So they went in there, broke my nose, and straightened it up. They did it under local anesthetic, and I could feel them saw off a bone and go in there and snap it off and stuff like that. It about drove me nuts. Well, after it was all over, they had opened my right nostril but closed my left. They did straighten my nose, and they put some kind of plastic cast over my nose while it was healing. Every day, this darn doctor would come in there and take this cast off and pinch my nose and wiggle it around and wanted to know if it hurt. I lay there with tears running down both sides of my face, and I got so mad I just wanted to reach up and pinch his nose till he couldn't stand it, but I didn't dare do that. After another three months, they said I could leave now. At that time, they were discharging on point system. You got points for months in service, hazardous duty, overseas, etc. I think they were discharging with 95 points, and I had 135. I now knew I wouldn't have any problem getting out. The only problem I had was there were four or five of us that were going to send to Fort Douglas for discharge, and one fellow was supposed to have our order papers. When we got on the train to go to Fort Douglas, he missed the train, so we had to wait for him to get there with our orders before we could get out. When I got there, I had a pretty bad cold, so I went into Salt Lake to my cousin's place, and she doctored me up to get rid of it. When I went through the line, I told the doctor I had this cold and hoped it wouldn't hold me up. Heavens no, it wouldn't hold me up a bit. But the thing I didn't like is that they ran me through and then called me back and wanted me to enter the hospital there and have all my teeth taken out. I asked what for. They didn't say anything about that in California. He wouldn't tell me. He just said they thought I needed to have them out. I always accused them of having some dentist that needed practice. So I said I wouldn't do it. I don't know of any trouble I have with them. Reluctantly, they said okay. Since that time, I've only lost two teeth, so I still think all they wanted was the practice. On my first furlough I got when I was in California, I decided I was going to save money and catch an army cargo plane. They fly all over the world, and we could ride free if they had the space. They aren't fancy at all. They don't have these nice seats in them. All you have is a bench along the side and cargo stacked all over. You have to sit between the cargo. I went into San Francisco, and when I got there, they had a plane coming in and picked up what passengers they could carry. I got in line and waited, and when the plane got ready to take off, it got off the end of the runway and got stuck in the mud, and they had to get a wrecking crew out and get it back on the runway. So it didn't get to Frisco until about 10 p.m. Before then, they told us just how many they could carry, and they whacked it off just ahead of my name. So I wasn't going to get to go. I didn't have anything else to do, and maybe something else will happen. Just a while before the plane got there, I don't know where this guy got his whiskey, but he got drunk and decided he wasn't going to go, and that gave me room on the plane. We got out over Nevada. It was cold in there because we were so high, and we were about froze to death. All we could do was stamp our feet. After a while, we could tell things weren't going right. We seemed to be changing course, and the ride was getting rough. We didn't know what was going on. Finally, we landed. It was just about daybreak. Come to find out, we were clear out in the middle of Nevada somewhere. What had happened was the wings had started to ice up, and they had to land at this emergency landing field that was manned by a lady and her daughter. All she had was landing lights and a radio. They told us afterwards the only way she guided us was she got her radio and leaned out the window and listened to the airplane and told the pilot what to do to land. It's a miracle we ever made it all at all, I guess. After a while, we got fixed up and took off and landed at Ogden. At Ogden, I had to catch a bus to Burley, Idaho. Couldn't get on over to Rupert, so a guy from Esequia and I hired a taxi cab to take us to Rupert. It was about 10 at night when I walked in the house. 
Mom and Dad were in the house, and they didn't know I was even coming. I liked big surprises at that time. I surprised them pretty good a couple times. I had to borrow Dad's car. I wanted to go right out and see Zola that night. He kind of thought I ought to wait till morning, but no, I couldn't stand that. I wanted to go out then, and so he let me take the car, and I went out. I guess I embarrassed her a little bit. Her mother was in the front room ironing, and I knocked on the door, and they invited me in. Zola was in the kitchen, and she came around the corner, and I grabbed her and gave her a big hug and kiss right there in front of her mother. Thank mm-hmm. you.